Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is November 1st. Happy November. Yesterday was uh, Halloween here in the United States. I'm here with Tammy. Um, we're going to talk about a few things today. None of them particularly happy. Although one of them I think in the end will be happy. But uh, we're going to talk about what has been happening in Korea with the tragedy at Itaewon. Um, Tammy, as everyone should know at this point, has been in Korea and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Mike Davis, you know, who is a hero. He was a sh- guest on the show um, and somebody that Tammy, me, everybody, I think, who is affiliated with this show looked up to a great deal um, in his passing. So, um, but uh, before we, Tammy, how are you doing? I'm okay. Um, wait, so how, what did your daughter do for Halloween? Was it fun? Uh, she dressed up as a Ninja Turtle. But um, she's like <laughs> very, she, I don't, she has this thing where she's like extremely focused. Mm-hmm. And when she's focused on something, it doesn't necessarily seem like she's enjoying herself very much. <laughs> this is true of soccer too, where, it's you like know. monomaniacal. Um, she just kind of gets in the zone and like doesn't, like her face is like, stone cold killer face <laughs> now there's part of me that obviously finds this to be great you know i'm like yeah go get him. <laughs> but then sometimes you know you do worry about it a little bit because it it is actually quite intense so she at was this like point. she looked like she was joylessly trick-or-treating she was running from house to house with like this nine-year-old kid like you know and some... just like sprinting <laughs> running after upstairs, her dad in some weird way sticking out her bucket you know <laughs> And then just being like, okay. And then like taking inventory and just like, <laughs> like it, looked, it, felt, it felt like she was like collecting taxes. Or like was she doing it also? Like the running part, was it just like, was she going to compete with another kid or was it just like with herself? I think it was basically she wanted to keep up with like the oldest kid. She has that I thing see. where she just yeah. likes to be around older oh kids. God. And, so um, but it was also just like, how much candy can she accumulate right, yeah. in the shortest amount of time? And I was just like, good Lord, you know, like have a, <laughs> have a little bit Wait, of Wait, so fun. are you, these days, are you just a Ninja Turtle or do they not do like the four different Ninja Turtles? No, she's Michelangelo. Oh, she okay. also wouldn't let uh, me and my wife dress up as Ninja Turtles this year because she was too embarrassed. Um, but Aww. yeah, it's a lot. Uh, she's has incredible it's interesting she's so young focus. to have that yeah are you is yeah she's gonna be like a you don't want to make her like a piano prodigy or something well in soccer she's been doing very well and oh. but last game she threw the ball literally from out of bounds to herself and ran in and <laughs> scored a goal and I was just like, <laughs> yeah oh my god in some ways you're like wow that's incredible you know and then you're like i don't have to really worry about you in a lot of ways and then the other way i'm just like are you gonna have (laughs) i don't know whatever like she doesn't Uh, know it's a team sport i love that well i think she tries but look it's five-year-old girl soccer and the girls part is not relevant to it but it's five-year-old soccer right and like (laughs) half the kids are stomping in mud puddles the whole time and having fun um or like holding hands and like being super cute you know and then there's like one kid who like doesn't get the point (laughs) 
just running around, <laughs> running around Times oh Square. Oh my god, I love that. Anyway, it's uh, it's, <laughs> she it's, sounds it's amazing. Cool. In some ways, it's great. In other ways, it's concerning. I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, just chill out a little bit is my thing. Um, so oh my before we talk about it, you know, one thing I wanted to say was that I spent yesterday talking, you know, listening to that affirmative action trial, oh you know, God. and there's nothing surprising about it. I mean, it's the same thing. So right? the oral so. arguments went the way you expected or was there anything in the discourse, in the dialogue that surprised you? No, it was all the same. Okay. The only odd part was that there was an entire section on military readiness, you know. But that was in the early, was that, that was <laughs> yeah, the, it was in the early affirmative <laughs> yeah, action Yeah, but I didn't think it right? would take such a big prominent see, role. <laughs> <laughs> and the argument is made, which I think is probably true, that like they need to have better diversity in the, in the academies, right? Like they're mostly talking about the academies right. because obviously the military yeah. is extremely diverse, yeah. you know, like if anything, it's Painfully. too diverse. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We know why. Um, but they're talking about the academies and they're just saying, like, right. look, we need to have officers that come out of the academies that reflect the actual military, which I think is totally true. You know, like, of course. Right. Like, that makes sense. But um, it was interesting to hear how much of it was about like that military is, readiness yeah, and like, you know. American hegemony will not be strong unless, uh, <laughs> unless we have a diverse group of, group of officers overseeing, like, you know, stationed people stationed all around the world, which um, I don't know is probably true, you know, like it factually. I mean, I'm not saying yeah, it's yeah. good for the world, yeah. it's probably true. Right. Wait, <laughs> but, but why did it take up time. so much airtime? Because that seems really non controversial. It seems like a propagandistic point about affirmative action that. Right. Well, that's why it would take up so much but point because it, it's a. And then, so who, which judges were most engaged with that? Oh, that's interesting. Well, Clarence Thomas talked a lot, right? Which is his thing is, I think he started talking more, but for a while he would never talk, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Alito and, I mean, they all, all they can, I, here's, here was my takeaway from it, which was that Katanji Brown Jackson, you know, mm-hmm. was really prepared and was like really making great arguments and like there's like a flow and a kind of like like lively i don't know her, her argument felt like like she was really engaging mm-hmm. and then so did my and kagan were like mailing it in really <laughs> yeah and i was oh, so man. disappointed <laughs> i felt so i like i, I did i feel bad because i was just like I was like, come on, it's six on three. You all have to try really hard, you know? <laughs> like, it's not just the decision that's going to be made. We all know what the decision's going to be, you know? Yeah. But, like, this is all, like, public record, you know? It also is, like, right. going to be covered by everybody. Like you, Like, you know, you all believe in affirmative action, you have to oh, try harder. It's like they've know? just given up. Like they can't be bothered anymore. <laughs> you know, they're like, Jackson, you're new. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go in there, Rook. Yeah, exactly. and like, you know, like, We've been in here for years. Like. Oh, man, she was great. She was great. Wow. And um, like really took apart a lot of interesting arguments. Mm. She also really brought up what I think is the most interesting key point here, which is like, okay, let's say everyone goes to holistic review and you can't review race. Then what happens when a person writes an essay about like how they Mm. faced racism in their life, you Mm -hmm. know, like, what do you do? And like, does that set up a thing where like the person has to not mention race 
do the admissions officers have to take a pledge that no we did not consider race uh-huh. in this essay about race does that mean that like people who are black or asian or latino or native american whatever can't write about their identity right you know yeah like these are all like real questions that are functional and even if they don't change the decision are going to be discussed like in the broader public and she really was great in actually locating like the real weak points in these arguments and then you know so what is the response i can't say the same thing about sotomayor (laughs) (laughs) i really felt like they're just jogging up and down the court oh my god (laughs) like well we're down 30 yeah (laughs) i'm retiring next year yeah Um, exactly what but Um, what so what was the response because i always did think about that too like on your cv you list that you're the president of the black students union or whatever right Right, right. Yeah, so right. did they have a response? Um, no, they didn't. Uh-huh, interesting. Right, but they, but, like, because it's not their job to prescribe what the, uh, sure. what the admissions offices will do. Deflect, but, yeah. like, the whole thing was trotted out in hypotheticals, mm-hmm. which these things always are, obviously, for whatever legal reasons that I don't understand. But, like, the hypotheticals just got more and more ridiculous and it was basically like listening to Neil Gorsuch and his very like dulcet like you know soothing tones of voice being like well you know um what about let's say please entertain this hypothetical for me you know Uh and then you had like for the UNC lawyers they had this Korean dude you know arguing for UNC I felt so bad for him you know first of all like he was like clearly nervous oh really <laughs> yeah Aww. but secondly it's like six on three and they're just hammering this dude oh you know? <laughs> it's so like, painful oh. <laughs> i was like ryan <laughs> ryan park <laughs> ryan park ryan you gotta you gotta ryan come on you know like <laughs> go on a run here <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i don't know i watched the whole thing as like it was a sport but you know maybe that's bad um so on a related note tammy there's this article this morning about um by Jennifer Lee, who's a sociologist at Columbia, and I want to get your reaction to it. I'll read the first two paragraphs for you. Um, Affirmative action is on trial again. This time, opponents of race-conscious college admissions practices are claiming that Asian Americans are hurt by it. The plaintiffs and students for fair admissions incorporated in presidents and fellows of Harvard College, which presented oral arguments before the Supreme Court on Monday, alleged that Harvard holds Asian American applicants to higher academic standards and rates and lower blah, 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 blah. The proposed solution is to abandon race as a factor in admissions decisions. This approach is based on a fundamental misconception. Asian Americans face bias in education, but not in the direction the plaintiffs claim. Research that I and others have done shows that K-12 teachers in schools may actually give Asian Americans a boost based on assumptions about race. Affirmative action policies currently in place in university admissions do not account for the positive bias that Asian Americans may experience before they apply to college. Abandoning race as a consideration at admissions would further obscure this bias. Um, and then there's a two paragraphs about like, hey, you know, there's like violence against Asians. Stop AAPI hate. Wow. And then okay. there's like a okay, basic there's... argument that says that like teachers are biased towards Asians, and therefore we have to like think about this more before we decide that Asians have been discriminated against. <laughs> I'm just confused, I guess. I I think my first reaction is I'm really maybe a little bit skeptical about the K through 12 argument of the positive bias. I'm not really sure 
what that means. I guess she, I don't know what study she's referring to that she conducted, but I guess you could see a situation in which maybe there was an assumption that Asians, I don't know, are stereotypically good at math and science and therefore they're right. held up to higher expectations, whatever. I'm not, I don't get, I guess I don't really see how then this would affect the logic of affirmative action at a higher education level. Right, right. Well, I think it's like kind of like a clumsy peg, you know, and but that it's one that is somewhat revealing, yeah. at least to me in a way, which is that like, I will say like, <laughs> there are so many of these studies that I've read now, like education research, because I write about it quite a bit. And one thing that I've noticed throughout it is that like, a lot of times the onus or the problem is placed on racist teachers. You know, it's like, okay, the teachers are racist. The teachers are racist, right? And that's why these sort of persistent achievement gaps occur. That's why, like, it, like it's all just because of teach. I just find this to be, like, wildly troubling to me um, because, yeah. like, like, you are basically placing the problem on teachers, you know, on, like, the people who are in the classrooms, who are underpaid, right, who are having their unions destroyed, who are having benefits taken away who in places like Oklahoma have to go on strike because they haven't had like a raise in like 13 years or whatever it was, right? Who are buying their own classroom materials, right? And there's this like kind of like holier than thou thing that happens, I think, with education academics, right? Where Or like, um, you know, pedagogical whatever PhDs that, oh, well, the problem is if we come in and we can teach these teachers to stop being racist, then we'll solve all the problems, you know? Mm. As like a former teacher, you know, I really think my response would just be like, fuck you, you know? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> like, get off your high horse, you know? Now, do we have racist teachers at the school? Absolutely, you know? Like, maybe a couple, maybe a lot, you know? But like, the idea that you're going to come in here and teach us how to not be racist anymore, like, through a DEI training or whatever like i don't know i just find it so fundamentally like offensive you know and like i just think that this is just like management stuff right like it's like okay the problem is that you know the the workers right and that um we have to like fix the workers or we have to replace them right and yeah. that like every problem that is like created by wealth inequality whatever right systemic racism or whatever it's like located at the teachers. And I, I don't know. I just find that to be like a terrible position for like progressives to be taking at this point. It also seems really weird to be able to put on the actions of like an aggregate of like <laughs> hundreds of thousands of individual teachers, right. a certain right. set of like racialized outcomes. Right. right. It just seems logically impossible. <laughs> yeah. Well, this study that she did, she and her um, and a colleague, interviewed 162 different teachers right now the idea that like racial stereotypes exist for teachers and they have positive and negative stereotypes is like pretty well founded in bigger research and that's not surprising obviously right everybody has stereotypes that they bring into their job or whatever but like i i don't know i just don't know what world these people are expecting right like yeah. like what like do you really think you can cleanse this all out of people and like, what do you think a teacher is there for, right? Like, is a teacher there just to like produce like completely anti-racist um, pedagogy that like uh, that ameliorates all? Like, that's not what the teacher's job is. The teacher is there to teach, right? Like, they're they're like they're not 
that's not their job. Like that is the job of society, right? right? And to put it all on teachers is just like so, I don't know. It's just like feels like they're bullying at this point because they can. Mm, That is a, yeah. (laughs) I'm actually, I'm still kind of stuck on this whole thing about like, I don't (laughs) know how if we can recognize that there is significant positive bias towards Asian Americans that somehow. Right, right. Then, was that your experience? That was not my experience in I school. My experience was to be I like. I had a pretty uh, hard ig- time. Yeah. yeah, my experience was to be like ignored. And then when I like started acting out was to be like severely punished for acting out, you know, yeah. like much more so than other kids. And then also like to basically be ignored because the teacher was just like, oh, I don't know. He's Asian. He'll figure it out. You know, like there's no support system in place i think that's the experience of a lot of right. asian kids yeah, yeah. and like um a lot of this is parents too you know like parent like it's parental culture too and to like ignore all that and to just say it's like the teachers who are the problem like yeah. like it just doesn't jibe with anything right. that i that i can tell bizarre and it is it is such a funny way of then trying to come back at like she's saying that asians are recipients of positive bias but then or beneficiaries of positive bias, but then there's also the Asian hate kind of trauma paradigm. And these are the joining of those is somehow kind of trying to answer this question around affirmative action. I know. Um, well, I don't really get what's happening. So out of like, if, if an article about Asians is 1,000 words right now, right? <laughs> How many are for AAPI <laughs> yeah, hate? 200 are like a perfunctory mention of AAPI hate. And like, 140 are uh, mention of Asian American, a term that started at the University of California, Berkeley in the late 1960s, you know? (laughs) There's no words left for the actual argument. There's like 600 (laughs) words left that you can make an argument in, and the argument is always just something like this. I don't know. It's This is like sort of, it's interesting because I think that this is basically like how, um, like if there is like an Asian American hegemony right like ideological hegemony in the elite spaces it's this right it's like a sort of hand wave to an idea of like model minority myth and racial solidarity and um you know it's us against the whites or whatever but increasingly like first of all well I, you know i obviously for anyone who's listened to this podcast find that to be somewhat unconvincing <laughs> um the second thing i would say is that like it's increasingly in education like anti-teacher you know, and like, I just, I just don't think that this is good politics. And um, I also think that like that hegemony is slipping a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that type of mindset, I think is, feels very dinosaur to me, but I don't know. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't thought about or seen enough of the kind of anti-teacher thing to kind of put that in this framework. I think what her op-ed, and again, this is kind of new to me, I think is, is getting at though is is this kind of like um, I don't know like we're all trying to perform like a mental gymnastics to see how we can make this like very difficult policy question honestly and kind of painful policy question like jive with a kind of solidarity that we envision across race right and I right. think like I think it's really really hard and I get why it's pain it pains so many people but I do agree that I think like the scope of discourse around it has been like extremely limited. <laughs> And that we haven't been very honest with ourselves about it. Yeah, because like here's the thing: it's like it's hard to say Harvard is clearly discriminating against discriminating against Asian kids, right? Um, And then also also, say like I support affirmative action at the same time because like basically the right has put us in this like you know not to use this you know 
I, you can, I, was, I thought of two Cliches. idioms here and they're both racist. You know, <laughs> oh. they put us in fu- Chinese finger cuffs. So that's oh, like, no, I can't God. say that. And then I was okay, like, they that's put super us in a dated. judo lock or what? something. <laughs> I don't know. They put us in Your something. Your brain is going haywire. <laughs> they put us in some racist trope that I can talk about, you know, but, but others cannot. <laughs> I feel like younger listeners won't even know what the Chinese finger cups are. <laughs> I know, I know. I barely know what Chinese like, finger cups are. <laughs> it was like a free prize that you got out of a plastic egg in like 1985. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Or you go to like, a, you know, like a terrible birthday party and it would be in the gift bag, you know. <laughs> and they're like, oh, we're trying to In the gift bag. Like, oh. You're like, this is I right. wish I had known back then to be over uh, offended by Exactly. Like, I'm sorry, Tom, but I noticed that in your gift bag at your bar, bar mitzvah, you put in some Chinese finger <laughs> Do you know how that made me feel? Oh <laughs> I was the only Asian person at your bar mitzvah, you know, and everyone was talking about Chinese finger cups. Your that lunchbox micro- moment was actually just like a finger cups moment. <laughs> that was a microaggression. <laughs> in ten, in twenty five years, I'll write an essay about this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I just find if I don't know, I think it was a good way to encapsulate exactly what you're talking about. Um, I think you have the right takeaway from this, which is like, look, it's hard to be like progressive Asian American right now with all this stuff going on, you know, the attacks, all the affirmative action stuff. You can't really say, I don't actually think Harvard is discriminating against Asian people because you sound crazy because like that is a crazy claim to make, you know? And so a lot of people have stopped saying that, right? And they say, all this is beside the point. And I think that like the, my only response to these people would be that the correct answer is like, hey, what about fuck Harvard? You know, Mm -hmm. why not just say that, right? Like, why not just envision a much more open and less exclusive system of education, right? And and fight for it, you yeah. know? Um, I don't know. So why um, do you but, think that's so hard? Just because we are all so invested in these institutions and we're thinking about our kids and the meritocracy we've potentially benefited from. I mean, what what's going on? Why can't well, we make that the, jump? One of the interesting things that happened in the trial was that, like, um, Ryan Park was explaining the benefits. Like, Clarence Thomas only had one question, and I thought it was very smart of Clarence Thomas to just keep asking this question, which is just, yeah. like, can you tell me what the benefits of diversity are, you know? Um, and it's tough. It's a tough, it's a tough thing to quantify, even though I personally believe very much in the educational benefits of diversity, yeah. right? Like, I mean, I it don't, seems obvious, I, but it seems very obvious to me that you don't want your kids to just grow up around the same type of people and to have no exposure to anyone else and then grow up to be an asshole. You know? Right. Like, like, I wish that they could just say that. I know. That's <laughs> literally the argument. That's the argument. Like, <laughs> don't make your kid a dick. Like, right. But because everything has to be quantified now, what Ryan Park says is, uh, well, there is a study about stock traders, you know, oh, and, and like uh, diverse groups of stock traders <laughs> oh, outperform Lord. non-diverse. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Wow. You know, <laughs> like, this is. But the, what, my correct. point is that we're addicted. Yeah. The people who want, are fighting for this, they want the exclusive system. Right. They just want it to look a little bit different, you know? Yeah. Like, they want all the same avenues of success. They want all the same avenues of exclusivity. They just want them to be slightly more diverse, you know? Um, and, like, that's the problem with it. It's hard to defend 
when that's it. And yet you can't not defend it because the other side is like, let's just like make it so that voter suppression is legal. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, like that's actually their goal, you yeah. know? And like, yeah. so like you're choosing between annoying yeah. and evil. Annoying is obviously better, <laughs> but how do you form an argument when the annoying thing is built on like totally totally compromised ground where you can't even form an argument, you know? And where almost everyone on your other side on the side with you are like talking about diverse stockbrokers, right? Like it's hard. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I anyway. think what's kind of interesting is in the people who are essentially having picking no fight with the existence of Harvard and its practices, like they're uh, they're kind of having the same opinion as the plaintiffs on Ed Blum's right. side, right? Which is that right. Harvard is the ultimate or whatever right. institution right. is the ultimate. Right. And this is like going to be fundamentally the way that we are as our, as Asian Americans or just as human beings like validated in some way. And so the warring positions yeah. actually agree on that part of it. They do. They do. And um, actually, if there is a side that is like against elite meritocracy, it's the plaintiffs who argue stuff like, like, for example, you know, like everybody was mad about legacy admissions, right? And all those studies came out that about legacy admissions at Harvard. Those are plaintiff's studies. <laughs> like they were, mm. they were, they were commissioned and distributed by the plaintiffs. Uh -huh. And why? Because they basically need to find a way to argue that like race is not necessary to build a class at Harvard, right? That in fact, it is something about the the very bizarre and ornate uh, exclusivity of Harvard that makes it so that they feel like they have to use race. But in fact, if they just got rid of legacy admissions and athlete admissions, then they would have money, you know, like a totally different pool that they could pull from. <laughs> and that these legacy kids are not qualified anyway. And that Harvard is doing this double thing where they're saying, well, you know, we need to find the most qualified students. But sometimes we put our thumb on the scale with race, you know. Mm. But mm -hmm. then we put an anvil on the right. scale yeah. when it comes to <laughs> legacies Cash. because that's what we want to do, you know. And so, like, when you're buying into, when right. you're arguing that, like, legacies are bad, you're actually arguing for the plaintiff side. Like, that's the argument they're making. And that's the thing that sucks about that is that basically at this point, there's no ground left to stand on, you know, because, like, the right can claim everything. Like yeah. they were the ones arguing about implicit bias in the trial. They were the ones oh arguing, you know, like it was weird. It must've been really fun oh for God. them though. You know, <laughs> you have all these like fed sock lawyers basically just be like, uh, wait, what? <laughs> I can my like stomach fucking... <laughs> turn thinking about this. Like, yeah. oh my God. I can just go woke here. <laughs> You know, it must oh, have been so Lord. fun. You know? <laughs> it's like they got a new gun in like a video game, you know, and they're like, holy <laughs> shit, I didn't know that this. <laughs> it's so disturbing. And the, right. And then the other side is just like, well, I guess we just have to give it to them because we have like no action. You know, we kind of screwed up here. And I don't know. That's my that's that. Anyway, that's enough about that. Let's let's right. talk about um, <laughs> let's change tones here a little bit and say, OK, so what what oh, has it been man. like in Korea the past few days? Um, yeah, it's pretty unbelievable. So if folks haven't heard. I'm sure most people have because it's been all over the international news, which and, and right. really quickly it jumped to the front pages of international news, which I thought was interesting. Um, so on the Saturday night before Thanksgiving, over 150 people were crushed to death. Um, in an alley in Itaewon, which is an international district in Seoul. And 
to my mind. Before Halloween. Before Halloween. Before Halloween. You said Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. The, yeah, no. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's always a big Halloween party in that area. One of our Discord members, Rob, is, is sort of like a local celebrity who always comes out with his dog on Thanksgiving. It's a very, like, festive environment. But it, Itaewon has really crowded streets, narrow alleys, um, which are very known to be crowded. And yet... Right the local authorities basically dispatched no police or guards or sort of security folks to try to manage the crowd. Um, we now know that dozens, over 100 calls came in to Korea's 911, basically saying like people are going to get crushed to death. These conditions are really, really bad hours before it happened. It's devastating. I mean, I think also we keep calling it, we keep using words like tragedy and tragic, and it just seems totally inadequate. Like also it's not quite, it's not, I keep wanting to use words like massacre or something. I just don't know how to even describe it because it's it's not a thing that was caused by party goers being irresponsible. It wasn't a thing that was caused by people like authorities who didn't know that this alley was suddenly really tight. Like every this was the most preventable, just bizarre situation. And um, yeah, it's just devastating. I think like grief is probably the dominant emotion, but honestly, I feel just feel like rage. Right. Can, can you give the listeners who are not familiar a sense of what this neighborhood is like, or the history of this neighborhood? Yeah. It, you know, it's obviously, at least to American listeners, will be the one neighborhood they might know, you know, in Seoul. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Itaewon has, um, so the, sh the short version is that um, it's a neighborhood that was sprouted from a military base area. Right that was first a Japanese military or sort of colonial outpost headquarters, and then was transferred to US forces, which have been in Korea essentially since World War II. And um, Itaewon is the district that kind of formed around that. And so it has lots of small winding alleys. It's extremely charming, really like cool old style and, you know, was built to have like sex workers and different kinds of commerce right. that were like catering to military forces and personnel that were associated with the U.S. military, but in, in recent decades has become kind of like a gentrified, cool old neighborhood of Seoul. Um, and very importantly, it's just like an international district, as I said first, right? So it's like, yeah, it's a place where people have always um, had cultures come together, like for better or for worse, but often for good in recent you know, right. years and it's a queer area, you know, it's a place you can just like be yourself. Um, I'm trying to put words on paper about this right now. And to me, like, it's really also just like an area of like pleasure and joy that is like pretty fucking hard to find sometimes in Korea. Yeah. It's such a hard and tight place sometimes. And um, so I, it just, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's just so fucking horrific. Most of the people who died are, were extremely young. In their teens yeah, like and teenagers 20s. and like in their 20s. Right? Um, so yeah. to just think about, yeah, from a friend's or parent's perspective of people put through the extremely difficult Korean educational system who just want to break Halloween is this kind of great tradition in that neighborhood where you can truly be yourself, be crazy, be wild. And um, and this is what happens. And the authorities are you know, blaming the victims, essentially saying that this was unexpected and they've done nothing wrong. Um, I hope the it leads to a real reckoning wild, for them. Right? I know, like, it's, it's like wild. there's like, I mean, I don't know, on social <sighs> media, if you look it. at it, right? <sighs> um, it's weird how much of social media is occupied by this. Yeah. Um, not weird, but like surprising, you know? But like there, 
there's photos and there's video of like what it's like every weekend there, you right. know, like it's always crowded. And um, now I don't know. It's just like, I, like I, I went to that neighborhood a lot when I was a kid, you know, mm. and it was all ar- army surplus stores yeah, and like it's very the, different. and the, uh, and the red light district. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there's like a McDonald's or something. This is all I remember. Mm-hmm. And also <laughs> for a while they would like, it would be the place you could buy like American sports jerseys in the alleys. Do you remember this? Yeah. <laughs> Very like, like camp town at that. Yeah. Point, they had all right? these like, uh, all that Heinz kind Ward of classic <laughs> camp town stores. <laughs> After Heinz Ward right. became like a yeah. great celebrity. Uh-huh. <laughs> but like, um, you know, I went recently and it's like, it is, it's like a, it seemed like, the sort of center of like the of a like young kind of more internationally definitely pop culture influenced korea and um i don't know like the footage from it is just terrifying i mean it's my nightmare as like pretty claustrophobic person is like is that and um it just seems like this was almost inevitable given how little you know how often these types of things almost happened. Yeah. And then with zero response, you right. know? So like, what's the public's response right now? Like, are they like, you know, this is not, you know, Korea has very interesting responses to these types of mass deaths, obviously. Right. Like, yeah. um, like, do you think that this can be, is this like going to be a huge deal? Like where there's going to be a huge shift in public opinion in the way that maybe there has been in the past? Or is this like, are, are people just seeing this as like an unfortunate thing with all these crazy kids being bad? Or so that's like what that? I was, the latter, you know, this kind of like blaming, victim blaming thing is definitely the thing I was really afraid of from the outset. Right. But I think as more facts have emerged in these days, it's just so clear that there was government misconduct or non-conduct. Right. You know, that they absolutely did nothing to prepare for the situation, even though all week every news channel was saying there's going to be a hundred th- crowds of 100,000 in Itaewon this weekend. Like it was the first big Itaewon Halloween party after the pandemic, right? Or in the right. late stages of the pandemic, knock on wood. Um, and I think also it's definitely, as a lot of people have noted on social media, that echoes with Seoul Hole yeah, yeah, that's impossible to ignore, right? So in 2014, right. if folks don't know, in April, um, a ferry that was transporting mostly school kids went down and over 300 people died. Um, kids, just people's kids on a school trip. And right. that led essentially, was part of what ultimately led to the um, impeachment of Park Geun-hye, the corrupt president. And so... Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely going to be, a, hopefully at least, a reckoning for this whole government and for the national government. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I do worry, though, that that in this case, there there are less, like, quote-unquote, blameless victims than, like, school children on a trip on a boat. Yeah, school children. You know, are, I mean, that is, like, right. yeah, <laughs> it, they were such innocents, and they I think there are innocents in this story, too. But I think I do worry about, you know, the evangelicals or other groups kind of demonizing the people who died. Right. Um, so we'll have Especially to watch Especially given that, like, they're going to think that a lot of them were gay or that they were, like, you know... Slutty like, or what, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, there's so much shaming and, around right. that. and But again, I think there's enough now public scrutiny and knowledge about all of the facts of the timeline of what happened that it's impossible to ignore. It's impossible to think that 
it was just the individual actions of 300 people that led them all to be either killed or hospitalized. Right. right. Um, and the, I mean, so. the video stuff that I'm sure is circulating all throughout Korea is truly horrifying. It's horrifying. And I and think parents like, are also coming out more to talk about, right. you know, sending their kids out and, um, uh, it's, yeah, I went to, Rob and I went to the memorial site uh, last night, and it was really, it, it was very, I mean, the strange part of it was how much media was there. Like, half of the people were mourners and half the people were reporters. And the reporters had flown in from all over the world. I bet, yeah. And they were all doing interviews, you know, kind of uncomfortably close to, like, the memorial site. And um, anyway, but but I do, but it was kind of, touching to me to see like all of the various kinds of people who usually gather in Itaewon in that space and just kind of reminding uh, as a reminder of this whole or the Korea that people don't always talk about. Right. You know, that it's not a, it's not a monocultural place. It's not a monoethnic place. It's not a, you know, just a straight and straight laced place. Um, and that all of those people who are sort of like outsiders, like found had a, had a place in Itaewon and now what does it represent to them? Yeah. Right, right, right. I mean, it is the only, it is a place where you will make it, where it will seem like Korea is actually like a diverse area with people from around the world. Um, and, yeah, uh, you know, like you have like people from Africa, you have people from Bangladesh, you have people from, Europe and Middle East and, you know, if they're going to go out anywhere, if they're going to really like sort of exist anywhere, it's generally in that neighborhood. And that, um, I don't know, it's, uh, it's very sad. I don't know. I, I just don't, it was hard for me to grasp, honestly, just because I was like, I don't know. I mean, I probably, I'm sure I've been on all those alleyways, you know, in the streets. Like I've spent a lot of time yeah. in that neighborhood. And yeah. um, even when, and it's in, it's an interesting place because it's also like it's that and then it's also the like up the hill it's like an area of extreme extreme wealth you know and um i don't know it was uh it was it was this just weird i was just i like, kept thinking about it. i think i was like 7 years old or something you know just walking around the yeah, alleys and be like this is beautiful it's so cool yeah. you know and then now it's just like carnage um i don't know how uh, to yeah and i think that um I mean, the last thing I, I've been thinking about was like I was spending a lot of time in the Yongsan district, which is adjacent to Itaewon right. in the few days before that. And because of the new president's decision to relocate the president's office to that area, it is absolutely mobbed with cops at all hours of day and night, just like mm. totally saturated. And so that contrast of having no one ready for a crowd of 100,000 people and then just having this constant you know, police state outside of a couple of government buildings is, is really striking. And I think people are going to call him to account for that. Yeah. I, I think uh, there is something where post-pandemic, I think, where people need to take more precautions in some of these things just because they tend to be much more populated than they were before, you know. And I think that because of the pandemic, people aren't really prepared, you know. I'm talking about like governments or cities or whatever, right? Like, um, but they like had totally accurate estimates 
And it wasn't even the biggest Halloween ever. So they just didn't do anything. They just didn't do anything. So it... Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I can't even think about it anymore. It's like literally my nightmare is to be crushed to death in a large crowd. Um, But, uh, okay. Let's talk a bit about Mike Davis. Um, Mike Davis was a guest on this show. Yeah. He was, I think, uh, one of our first guests. Um, And, uh, you know, he passed after a long you know, bout with cancer. And, um, you know, I think that some of the tributes for him came out when he decided to, you know, abandon care and to, you know, just go on palliative care. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he thought it was just a matter of time. And I don't know, this, it was very upsetting to me personally, like, not that that really matters, but you know, like it was like, even when you're expecting it, it's still like kind of sucks when it happens, you know? Um, but, uh, I don't know. He represented so much, you know, he represented a kind of figure that is so rare in society. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's like one of one as the children. (laughs) And everyone wants to be him. You know, he's like a hero. I know. I know. (laughs) You know, it was interesting because like, I think it was four or five years ago. I am not taking any credit for this. So please do not like take it that way. But like, I remember like, (sighs) I was talking to Jim Surowiecki. Do you know who that is? Uh, he used to be the, to okay. the okay. Anyway, Jim and I are friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was talking to Jim because Jim and I were working at Vice together on that TV show. And I was like, why? Like, it's interesting how there's like all this ascendant intellectual left, you know? And like Mike Davis is not mentioned that much. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. shortly after that, not because I said it to Jim and, you know, <laughs> it was put out into the air, but, you know, like people started to like almost like rediscover him in mm. a way. Um, and that doesn't mean that to the left academics that he wasn't central. Of course, yeah. he always was, you know, but he sort of took on this towards the end of his life, like almost like a much broader grasp in the public conversation. I wonder why that is. Do you have any ideas? Do you ideas? mean before, even before the pandemic? Because definitely that happened during the pandemic because of his book, Monster at the Door. Before, and, yeah. This was like 2018 that's or interesting. something. Yeah, yeah. 2017, I think. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Like, do you think it's, do you think it was a pandemic that sort of brought him back into like a I think, I mean, centrality? that's what I was thinking just in terms of his, the kind of like rediscovery of him in recent years, um, because it was impossible to ignore his writings because they were so prescient about global pandemics um but i I mean yeah i'm curious you must have seen something a little bit earlier than that i mean the thing about mike is like he wrote on such a variety of topics yeah like car bombs (laughs) right that like at kind of like you could index so many different things to that are happening in our world at any given time to something he put out 20 years ago you know and so I wonder if there was something in that moment that <laughs> it might have been the fires in California too. Oh, yeah, you know, actually. like it might have been that because yeah, that's um, a good point. I don't know. It's interesting how uh, he became towards the very end of his life, like you know, much more central. Yeah. Um, and I do think it was because he wrote a lot, right? The book that he wrote with John Weiner, like, came out like two years ago about this like seven hundred page book about like activism in Los Angeles. It's an right. amazing book. <laughs> um, I listened to like half of it and then I read the rest of it, and it was like, I think it was like for a while, my wife was just like, "What? How are you still listening? Because <laughs> it's so long." You know? <laughs> um, but uh, you know, like that. 
I, I, I don't know. Like, I wanted to like, so I thought that one of the ways in which we could do it is that I, we could talk about some of the pieces that we liked. And, you know, for me, that yeah. the piece that began, I, the, the first piece I read was that in college, I read The Case for Letting Malibu Burn because mm-hmm. I took an ecology class and my professor, Matt Klingle, told me to read that nice. the, he assigned it. And I remember I read it and I was a very bad student in college. And then like my, my mind was like blown, you know, it's just like, oh my God, I can't believe I can write <laughs> like this. And then, uh, and then, and then I read the rest of it, but like, you know, I think the piece that is like the most influential for me at least was Fortress LA. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I just read a couple paragraphs of it. These are the first two paragraphs. The, the carefully manicured lawns of Los Angeles' West Side sprout forests of ominous little signs warning armed response. Even richer neighborhoods in the canyons and hillsides isolate themselves behind walls guarded by gun-toting private police and state-of-the-art electronic surveillance. Downtown, a publicly subsidized urban renaissance has raised the nation's largest corporate citadel, uh, segregated from the poor neighborhoods around it by monumental architectural uh, glasses. In Hollywood, celebrity architect Frank Frank Geary, renowned for his humanism, apotheosis sizes the sledge look in a library designed to resemble a foreign legion fort. In the Westlake District in the San Fernando Valley, the Los Angeles police barricade streets and seal off poor neighborhoods as part of their, quote, war on drugs. In Watts, developer Alexander Hagen dem- demonstrates a strategy for recolonizing inner city retail markets. A panopticon shopping mall surrounded uh, by staked metal fences and substation of the LAPD and a central surveillance tower. Finally, on the horizon of the next millennium, an ex-chief of police crusades for an anti-crime, quote, giant eye, a geosynchronous Law enforcement satellite, while other cops discreetly tend versions of, quote, garden plot, a hoary but still visible 1960s plan for law and order, order. Um, Armageddon. Welcome to post-liberal Los Angeles, where the defense of luxury lifestyles is translated into a proliferation of new repressions in space and movement undergirded by ubiquitous, quote, armed response. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, I've lived in Los Angeles, right? I've been to Los Angeles my whole life. And like, you know, like this is the type of thing where like it just changes the way that you see places, right? Yeah. Like, um, I don't know. Like after you re- after I read this, I can't go to LA without just noticing how the whole thing is it's just so like a security fortress. It's so true. <laughs> like I, I was telling a story where I like um, I was in Beverly Hills because I was going to see my TV agent, you know, and it was like this moment of like into- I like my TV agent, so this is not about her, but you know, I was outside. <laughs> like and this I, like, sounds had, so ominous. I had this like moment of. Uh, intense self-loathing because it was like I was on Wilshire and Rodeo Drive basically which is where the agency is and I was standing there and I was like um and I was like waiting for my Uber and my Uber was like doing one of those weird circle things and I was getting mad staring at my phone and then I was like what have I become (laughs) 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 like you know like I was just like I fucking hate myself you know anyway so then I (laughs) I was like, okay, whatever. I'm just going to walk, you know? And so I just started walking down Wilshire. And, you know, like the whole thing, just the whole piece just floods back to you as you walk down the west side. Like, and you're just like every single building is hostile. They're all hostile, you know? Like it is the most hostile place. Like they won't, there's nowhere to sit, right? right, On purpose. Right. Like there are no windows on purpose. (laughs) Like everything is sealed off so dickheads like me can go see their tv agents you know (laughs) and then then, like go to the cafe across the street and they get picked up in a car you know and like you know i don't know like yeah every time i go to i have one of these moments you know and it's it's uh 
like I just can't think of writers really who like can implement can kind of like burrow themselves themselves in their in your head mm-hmm. to such a profound in such a profound way yeah. you know um where it's like everything you see is influenced by them so I don't well it's interesting to think of I mean Mike Davis the ultimate California writer but then also Joan Didion the ultimate California writer and but the politics are so <laughs> opposite <laughs> opposite and yeah. but I think like I often think about her when I'm there too because yeah I think she had a lot of actually psychological insight into into the formation of California as well but I think that the thing about Mike is like he just pushes it and politicizes it you know and makes you see things with such like compassion and um, with such a critical eye. And I, I don't know what it was about him that allowed him to do that and to synthesize, synthesize so much material yet make it so clear, you know, because you look at the footnotes for these books and there's, he's read like bajillions of things. Oh, like yeah, I think he, yeah. in, I think it, maybe it was the interview he did with Sam Dean and the LA times, like even towards the end of his life when he was very, very sick, I think he was saying his routine was to read like 500 pages a day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And he's writing to the very end, you know, and he's just, I mean, what, what incredible brain power, but also just that something about his work is just like that syncretic, like that just bringing together of all of this different stuff. Yeah. And just yeah, then, I don't like, know how somehow making it. it pop. Because the how writing is not good. boring. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 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 It's, and to not make it sound scoldy or, or, you know, annoying or, overly cooked in terms of like yeah. it's politics you know where it's yeah. like propagandistic right, right? All, like also preachy. obviously he was propagandistic <laughs> right but like sure man like it was like the best type you know, <laughs> it's just like also you know i just think he's right about everything well, so yeah, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't count helps. as propaganda to yeah, me exactly <laughs> like he proved it but it also <laughs> jives with what i think yeah um. yeah and it's uh um I don't know. What, what, Tammy, what pieces like have stuck with you? That yeah, I mean, I think so. Fortress LA, part of City of Courts, definitely like that book was my entree to his work as well. Um, I wanted to shout out, though, like his writings in New Left Review, just even in recent years. I mean, up until the end, like he wrote a piece that I was just rereading this week about foreign policy and what the hell we're doing in Ukraine. And, right. you know, a thing I noticed just like reading those magazine pieces is how he's like, unwilling to let anyone off the hook. Like there's no heroes in any of those pieces. Um, You know, I mean, I think like obviously Mike, like when he came on our show, it was kind of in the thick of Black Lives Matter protests and it was pretty hopeful that moment that he came on, you know? Right. um, You know, for him, like the heroes were people like his kid's age who were teenagers on the street and who were, you know, trying to, bring a better world but when he's actually doing an analysis of power like he can go through an essay and talk about putin and biden and xi jinping and it she she what am i saying yeah it's (laughs) fine and um yeah and somehow everyone is brought to account you know in a really sharp way there was a thing he said in that in that um last essay for new left review though about um, like a generation of writers that doesn't exist anymore who do foreign policy, who did foreign policy in like a very left-wing way. And it made me think of Mike. 
Yeah. And like if he's representing also a generation of writers who wrote in this particular way that we just don't have anymore or writers who were weird, who like didn't kind of come through, you know, college and graduate programs <laughs> into well, fancy think, magazines. Right, right, right. Who grew up in a different type of way. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I think like having losing, having him and Barbara Aaron, right, pass around the yeah. same time is like. It's hard to not think of generationally at that point. Now, yeah. I think that one should resist that as a rule, you sure. know, but it does. It is like kind of like, all right, well, you do take an assessment of what's happening now, you know, and I think that like, well, I think two things. The first is I think like we're in pretty good shape, right, in terms of the way in which people are formulating these things. Right. And I do think that the question I, I agree, I think, with. Olafemi Taiwo, that the real question is about elite capture, but that is not an impossible problem. You know, <laughs> it yeah. feels impossible from where we are, you know, within the elite, but like, you know, like right. I don't think it actually <laughs> is impossible. Right. Um, and like, there is like an argument that perhaps if we really care about it that much, we should write for the new left review and like truth out instead. <laughs> you know, it's an option. You know? right. like, <laughs> and like if someone said that to me, I would be like, you know, it hurts my feelings you said that, but I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> what am I going to say in my own defense? You know, you're like, sure. You know, like, um, but uh, I don't know. I think that there is a appetite now now, the only thing that I will say is that I do think that it has become credentialized in a way that is like concerning, you know, um, but it was always credentialized in a way, you know, um, I don't know, like Adolf yeah. Reed is a professor at an Ivy League institution, you know, um, Barbara Fields is a professor at an sure. Ivy League institution, Robin yeah. D.G. Kelly is a professor at UCLA, you know, so um, Mike could have been a professor at those places, yeah. I think, but probably enjoyed teaching where he was teaching. Yeah. And um, and so it's not like it wasn't credentialed before, but now it seems much more processed through a lengthy education. You yeah. know what I mean? And that is a little bit different. But yeah. um, I also I don't think, think people that used it. to mess around more before, right. you know, they had yeah. a weirder. Po I mean, you've done a lot of weird stuff that you've talked about on the podcast, too, but um yeah, I was yeah. thinking that too, just with like, I don't know, even like writers like, I don't know, I, I, like Bill Finnegan, for instance, who like fucked around a bunch and was like a surf bum and whatever things before, you know, becoming like a credentialed journalist. And I anyway, I think there, there was, there is like something slightly generational just because of like that kind of wild, you know, 60s period, I think that people have. <laughs> I know, I know. Even like people I know who are like, kind of like, my neighbors, for example, who are like kind of square, you know, some of them, not all of them, some of them are great, but even the ones that are, you know, like, like they had like a five year period of their life where they're doing something wild right? that would seem like yeah. totally inaccessible to yeah. my kids today. Yeah. And part of me thinks like, oh, well, that's a, uh, that's like because of precarity and stuff like that. And like, okay, fine. That is true. Yes, on some level. Yeah. Yeah. But also, <laughs> but there's also like, something else going on. It's yeah. something else. Like yeah. people are more concerned with these types of things mm -hmm. than they might have been in the past and 
a lot of the people who would say it's precarity, like are not from particularly precarious situations. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, it's precarity for other people. Maybe not you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't think it's for you. You know, like let's just have more rich kids wandering the earth, you know, like, I don't know. And then they can go become writers, you know, their writing will be more interesting. Um, And since writing is mostly rich kids anyway, you know, it's not like we've changed anything. We've just made like the rich kids more interesting. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I wanted to shout out another Mike Davis book, which I've honestly only read parts of and should read in full. Um, But Prisoners of the American Dream is cited by so many people who do organizing work around me in my life. And um, I I guess like the the quick kind of overview of this book is that it's basically trying to figure out um, historically, like, why is it that the U.S. has never had like this labor kind of relationship between like labor and the working class and politics? Like, why have we never had like a class-based party or like stable politics in this country? Um, Yeah. And Anyway, just the fact that he can kind of have these books that are like super wide ranging and difficult, like kind of like Hobbsbaum type histories. And yet they're somehow also guidebooks for like people who are doing like real life organizing and that those people respect him because of who he was, you know, I think is that makes him a pretty extraordinary figure. I can't really think of other people like that. That's how I felt about, I tweeted a bit about this, but that's how I felt about his uh, chapter about this very, very lengthy chapter about like homeowners association organizing in San Fernando Valley where like he, I, first of all, I don't understand, like this is where part of the brain doesn't, you don't understand where you're just like, (laughs) how did he figure out that this is the backbone of all California politics right now? Some of it is because, you know, you had Jarvis and you had prop 13 and you had like this whole like homeowner revolt that was big news in Los Angeles and actually all throughout California, right? So like, okay, so you take that. But then you focus on like this dude in Sherman Oaks who's like a lawyer and who's a Democrat who's just like a tireless activist. (laughs) (laughs) And then you basically make this argument that this guy, you know, basically found common interests between him and all the other homeowners, organized all of them and created like this like unimpregnable block right of like political power and that it is so destructive right Mm -hmm. and that um but at the core of it i think is this respect (laughs) for the man's organizing abilities right (laughs) and like that's where i like that's that's where i feel like he's way better than some of his contemporaries and some of his imitators where i think the beginning argument and this is true i am not saying it's not true but on the left, sometimes we dismiss things much too easily by just saying, oh, it's dark money or it's mm-hmm. just money. Mm-hmm. It's because they're rich. It's like, like, listen, there are rich people who don't like ter- like pass Prop 13 and like, you know, like destroy like an entire area. <laughs> like, yes, there is yeah. money there. Right. Like those people are like middle class. Like Sherman Oaks is not like the super wealthy, you know, but it's like upper middle class, middle yeah. class. Right. Yeah. And now it's like a ton of Latino people. So it's not all white, you know, mm-hmm. but like it is more white than probably Los Angeles in aggregate. But those factors like are true. But like, you know, there's a the whole other part of it where you have this dude and like all these other people continuously organizing themselves, sending out this like fucking pamphlet. You know, I talked to the dude, he, de- <laughs> he passed recently, but the guy that is profiling Mike's book, he like, 
talk to me on the phone and then he mailed me the Sherman Oaks oh, homeowners wow. association. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, that's how like, you know Dang. I can't tell if he is doing it almost as a joke, but like he mailed it to my address. You know? and I was like, this guy's amazing. You know? wow. <laughs> He's like totally evil, but like wow. you have to respect it. But I think that was sort of his, you know, the idea that the books can look at as guidebooks, yeah. I think it is because of that, because like he even when he was on his podcast, he was like, the left should never yield the streets, right? Like, why are we yielding the streets, right? Um, I think that it's just that there is this, like, central argument to it that people can get things done if they work together, you know? Right. And yeah. uh, and you find it throughout his work, and he is able to prove it. And then in that way, it's very inspiring, you know? Yeah. Like, um regardless of what the result is, right, of the thing that he's saying. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why it feels more like, you know, guidebooky than others. Yeah, I know. I know. And he, we always, he had that nickname, like, Prophet of Doom or whatever. Yeah. But but as you were saying, I think there is also this kind of strain of, like, DIY optimism in it. Just, like, get off your butt, go do, break something, you know? I don't, yeah, I always confuse it. I never read deep pessimism into his mm-hmm. work. Like, I read, like, Outrage, which is the opposite of pessimism. You yeah. know, like, Outrage is obviously sprouted from, like, deep anger at the conditions that we're in. And also, but also, like, a incitement for people to be mad and to do something about it, you know? Like, I think they're opposites. Totally. Like Interesting. The case for letting Malibu burn is, like, the case for letting Malibu burn. You know, like, there's a <laughs> prescription there, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Like, I feel increasingly hopeless in my own work, you know, like I've sort of noticed this <laughs> recently. And, you know, I don't know. It's like, I don't think it's a good thing, you know, like, I don't know. It's like, sometimes you're just like, I don't know, things seem kind of fucked up. And what are we going to do about it? But like, that's never his work, I don't think. Right? Like, Why work, do you feel that way? You're usually more optimistic. I don't know. It seems like we're headed towards some pretty bad times, you know. And yeah. um, I think that the progressive logic that sort of held together, you know, Democrats or whatever is starting to break down in a lot of ways. And um, I think that people are starting to kind of scurry towards their own groups, right? And stuff like the LA City Council meeting. I was thinking about it a lot because of our conversation about Tammy and like you're point that you made I think is ultimately correct which is like the downside of it is much bigger than the potential upside you know it's like (sighs) and it's also understandable you know because like those tapes confirmed everything that everyone ever always thought and they insulted every single race (laughs) 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 everybody (laughs) it's like the Koreans black people especially you know Armenians (laughs) (laughs) jews like who did they not insult in la (laughs) maybe persians (laughs) got a pass but i don't even know if you know like um and um yeah i don't know it just feels like that thing was actually pretty bum it bummed me out and then um and then this education stuff that i cover it's just it's just like this bloodbath you know that's gonna happen um Because parents are very anxious, you know, and um, I mean, I can see it just in my personal life, but I can also just see it (laughs) on the national stage, you know, where people are really worried that their kids are not going to 
live good lives because of the pandemic. And it's really hard to tell them otherwise because none of us know. And motivated parents are like, you know, the single most destructive force in <laughs> this country. Them and no, they members. are. Yeah. So um, yeah. Um, I think there's going to be just, I think things will be bad for a while. But, um, but you know, I try and not feel that way. <laughs> I don't know. We're in some deep... I know. I wish, I was thinking this week that I wish Mike had died at a time when things were a little bit more hopeful. Because I think he went at a time when so much of the stuff that he was critiquing had no, there was no response from the left about any of it. Um, so I feel, yeah. I feel bad about that, but yeah, we'll do better, I guess. It's, <laughs> it is true, but you know, yeah. And in terms of inspiration or whatever as yeah. a life, of course, like this is the life everybody, right. Every writer wants, you know, yeah. um, to be thought of as somebody okay. with deep integrity incredible intelligence compassion there's really like that's it you know like uh <laughs> yeah. like and also somebody yeah, who like remarkable. the people who met him like him you know mm-hmm. which is rare <laughs> you know? True, yeah <laughs> very rare so the erin ray comparison is a good one though definitely because she also wrote on such a diversity of topics also had a weird working class background you know so yeah two yeah two giants yeah, she's. I, she wrote on so many topics that sometimes oh I couldn't keep up. You I know, know. And I'm just like, you wrote a book on what? Like the <laughs> the self help industry. You know, I was <laughs> right. like, why am I? <laughs> like, this one's a little far afield for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna save it in my audiobook queue. <laughs> um, but yeah, have you seen this? Did you know that you can just like on Libby? Do you know what Libby is? A oh library my god, app? I just started using that. Yeah, you can like ago. download audiobooks, like it's all amazing. sorts of audiobooks. I haven't tried the audio yet, but the library function is amazing for regular books too. Do you do audiobooks? I haven't figured out how to do it yet. Oh my God. I just, it's my main. Well, no, that's not true. I mean, what, and what I mean by that is like, I can't retain <clears throat> the information I hear when I do it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I, I find that I'd retain it like almost better. You really? Know? Yeah. So then if yeah. you need to use something for like an article or refer back to it, how do you remember where to get it? In the oh, audience? I just download the book too. Oh, you just kind of remember? Like I download a PDF of the book and then I just like, I have like uh, whatever. Oh yeah, Not your memory brag, is really good. But I have like an audio photographic memory or something where I can That's remember frightening. passages verbatim and I just search for them. And you can the do the keyword search. Okay. So. <laughs> Good for you, Jay. I know. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm just gifted. Yeah. Hashtag, like... hashtag, hashtag blessed. Thanks for, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks for no advice at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it's, uh, I don't know. But then sometimes I just Maybe like rip through PDFs. I don't, I've, the, the only type way I don't read anymore is like with a physical book in front of me and I feel kind of bad about it, but I also don't feel bad it's enough hard to, to stop. Yeah. The PDF thing is like so fast that it's like, it's just so much faster and given that most of the books I read these days are academic books, right, where you just like, you know, it's a different form it's of reading. It's not a novel. Yeah. Right. Um, it's like, it's okay. Can you um, do novels on, have you done novels on audiobooks? Audio, and no, how is that for you? No, okay. no, 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 So no. it's better for nonfiction. Yeah, most of the novel. actually, yeah. you know what, I'm trying to think. Actually, a lot of the novels I've read recently, I've read 
physically. I just, it's just, it's much less common for me to read a novel. Like I read all the, whatever, Otessa Mosvig books, not all, but like some of them. And I read them all in physical copy, but I don't know. I generally, I read pretty fast. So it's like, you know, some of them I just like. You read fast. You have a photographic memory. Good for I you. I don't have a photograph. I have an audio <laughs> photograph. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I oh feel like God. I'm like a, the reason I just feel like I'm like a, a processor, you know, just like read and then type, read, type, read, type. <laughs> 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 it's fine. It's like my job. That but, is your job. Um, yeah. There have been times where I'm like, you know, what about me as a human? What about my- <laughs> your fulfillment? <laughs> just like, well, who cares? Um, okay, uh, let's see. I think that's great. Let's uh, let's leave it at that. And yeah. Tammy, um, you know, eh, what a tragic time to be to be there. You know, um, to be in Korea and um, yeah, be well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our show. I want to do one big reminder here, which is that on December first. I am getting on a plane and flying to New York City, which I'm not happy. You know, the flying part, I'm just like, oh, my God. But I am very excited to be in New York City because me and Tammy and Washu are going to do a live recording of Time to Say Goodbye at the NY- at NYU. Mm-hmm. Now, you can find information about this. You can RSVP. Um, it is at a theater at NYU. Is that right? Kimmel, you know? yeah. Um, Kimmel mm-hmm. Theater at NYU. Um, and uh, if you go to our twitter page at ttsg pod you can find information on it there or you can go to Waz twitter page or something like that or mine or tammy's or something but probably that our twitter page is the fastest way to go we would <laughs> we'll love to see all now. of you we're gonna hang out afterwards as always you know the community around the show is why we keep doing it and um this is a very good experience for I don't know. It's a good opportunity for all of us to sort of get out and meet if you're in the New York area and um I don't know. Tammy, you've met many more listeners than I have, but so I'm excited about yeah, it. Yeah, it's gonna like, I think the New York people are excited to welcome you. I'm getting out of my basement for the first time. <laughs> Jay's gonna wear pants. Yeah, I know. And I'm, real I'm shoes. Not, I'm not thrilled about that either. <laughs> I might wear like big socks with my plastic Parkinson. Oh, you're still gonna okay. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, no, it's too gross in New York City. Also like <laughs> Like, it's, like, too embarrassing. And also, it's going to be too cold to it do that. It might be cold you know? by that point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't just wear socks and Birkenstocks in the winter in New York City. Probably just wear, like, boots or something. Um, all right. Well, uh, if you'd like to be in contact with us, please, please email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. And until next week, um, yeah. And thanks to our producer, as always, May Shots. And until next week, uh, Tammy, I will see you soon. Bye.